You're listening to the GP Supervision Australia podcast, teaching your registrar about best practice Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Presented by Dr. Karen Nichols and Dr. Simon Morgan. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. Welcome everyone. My name's Simon Morgan. I'm a medical educator, a GP, and I'm joining you from a Wobbacool country. I'm based here in Newcastle at the uh, mouth of the Hunter River. And I think that's possibly my cue to introduce Karen. Now, Karen and I go back a very long way, and it's been a wonderful connection, both from a friendship and a professional point of view. Karen, a very, very impressive person. She's a Torres Strait Islander woman, currently residing just north of me on Waramai country. She's a fellow with the RSCGP and currently works as the specialist trainee support lead with the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, AIDA. She has significant experience in the area of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and is currently the Torres Strait Islander representative on the RSCGP Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Council. Karen finds education students, registrars and doctors very rewarding and I can certainly attest to her passion and capability in that area having seen her deliver many sessions over the years. It's a great pleasure to have Karen along. She's done some work recently with GPSA and we're speaking to that and obviously presents from a very authentic experience as a a GP, as a Torres Strait Islander woman and somebody who's had quite a bit of experience in this field, certainly in the education. So Karen, a wonderful pleasure to have you on tonight. Thank you, Simon. That's very lovely, that introduction. So as Simon mentioned, I am a Torres Strait Islander woman, um, Malakuai, which is Boigu Island, the most northern tip of Australia, in terms of right on the border of the boundaries of Australian waters and with connection to the southern country on Cape York. I am currently not working clinically. I am working in a role to try and increase the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander non-GP specialists which is something that I'm really quite passionate about. So I'm quite privileged to be occupying this space. The objectives are to better support the registrar, to deliver best practice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and how you can use the GPSA teaching plan and the guide in delivering the teaching opportunities for registrars. I do want to acknowledge that I am on Warramai country and just acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. So just really quickly, why is this an important subject? Well, mainly because 50 to 60% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients only access mainstream general practice. So it is really important that general practitioners who are working in non-Aboriginal community controlled health services or Aboriginal medical services are involved in teaching registrars about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. Currently, based on the 2021 Stats, almost a million people in Australia identify as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander, which is 3.8%. So the population is increasing and about a third of that population is actually under 15 years of age. So we are dealing with a different population who have different health needs. Okay, so where can we start? Well, the guide that's been designed by GPSA, it was published last year, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health in General Practice and Introduction to Teaching and Learning. And I think that this might actually be a really good starting point. So really, 
your teaching of a registrar should start as soon as they arrive and you will be role modelling what is considered best practice. So demonstrate what is expected when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. This GPSA resource, this recommends the approach being considering the four C's, so cultural, clinical, consultation and context. One of the other things that I liked to do when we had a new registrar starting was making sure there were certain resources that were available for the registrar in their room, along with their MERTARs and their ETG. I will, I will just quickly talk through what they are. Chronic kidney disease, the handbook on that. They're working together. So this is about social and emotional well-being. So that's another one that we would have in the room for them. We would actually have something on the stolen generations as well. And then the National Preventative Guide for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health, which helps inform the 715, and we'll come to that later in the talk. As a little pack, it just helped the registrars know where they can get some information. So let's move on to the first part of our C's, so the cultural context. So First Nations Australians have a history that is at least 65,000 plus years old. The connection has been continuous and it is important to note that the cultures are living and evolving. There is a resurgence in language and cultural knowledges and practices. The effect of colonisation has been damaging and profound and this has been experienced via direct and intergenerational trauma, which as clinicians we see manifest as diseases such as chronic diseases, substance use and mental illness. So these are things that you'll be familiar with. So what do you need to ensure that your registrar knows? Well, Australian history, including pre-contact Aboriginal society. So what was health like beforehand? The significant policy eras, such as protection and assimilation policies, the child removal policies, and also, so that's sort of the big picture in Australia, but they also need to be aware of the local history and what has occurred. So these are actually really important. There will be parts of that history that as Australians we're not proud of. However, it should still be acknowledged because of the impact that these can have on those First Nations populations in those areas. Now, the registrar may have undertaken these teachings in medical school. However, what we do notice is that those years in the hospital system, the PGY1, 2 and 3 plus years, this is actually not reinforced. It's not practised. Therefore, the registrars unlearn it. So they may need to be reminded about this history. And so it may be something that you need to go back over. If you have a doctor who has been trained overseas, again, this history may not have been taught. So it is something that as supervisors you need to be familiar with. I would like to recommend a video that is on intergenerational trauma and it's an animation by the Healing Foundation. It is what I consider to be a beautifully done animation about intergenerational trauma. The next Thing to recommend. So we've talked about Australian history. We'll come to who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but cultural awareness and cultural safety training, and that will hopefully have been done by your registrars within the first six months of their first year of training, if they haven't done it already in the hospital system. So cultural awareness, which is the idea of becoming familiar with your knowledge, 
that your worldviews and beliefs and your upbringing has not been a shared experience by many parts of the Australian community. So understanding that you see the world differently to others. Cultural safety, again, is hopefully something that registrars will be undertaking in their first six months. And this is a reflective practice where the clinician is basically checking in to making sure that their unconscious biases aren't affecting consultations and also checking in to make sure that they are approaching the patient from a patient perspective and patient-centred care and not inflicting their cultural beliefs on a patient. Cultural safety ensures that there's correct use of terminology and that there's correct cultural protocols and it is actually a really important skill to develop as a doctor when you're working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It is not something that registrars will pick up within six months, but it is definitely something that they can work towards. Now, why is all of this important? How do these policies impact? So let's consider an Aboriginal patient that you may have who was born before 1967. So remembering that before 1967, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were not citizens. They didn't have the right to vote. So considering some of the political history, what might the person feel when engaging with someone in authority? So you could have your registrar reflect on this. So for example, let's have a hypothetical patient who's a 68-year-old male who's in hospital. Reflect on their experiences. What might you need to do as the GP to advocate for that patient, which you wouldn't necessarily have to do for a non-Indigenous patient. I can think of a couple of Aboriginal men that I've had as patients who, when they are faced with authority, such as in a hospital, they don't ask questions, they don't disagree. That is because of that history of being disempowered and not being seen as Australian before that 1967. So they do feel that they lose their voice. The other thing to reflect on is for some of these patients and, and in Queensland where I worked at for quite some time, there was knowledge and there was a living memory of the hospital having segregated wards. So there would be wards for the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, South Sea Islander patients and wards for the non-Indigenous non-South Sea Islander patients. So think about how that might affect the community's engagement with that health service. And then as a GP, think about the difficulty you might have in encouraging your patient to attend the hospital and how you might actually teach your registrar, one, how to advocate effectively, and two, the history of that local hospital. It's about this point where I imagine some of the supervisors might be thinking, look, I'm really, really enthusiastic and keen to try to facilitate these conversations, but, you know, I actually just don't feel confident or I haven't had the experience or I don't know the answers. And I, I guess I'd be interested in your take on that. My basic response to that would be around just a two-way learning, really, that, that it's an opportunity for both the supervisor and the registrar to learn if, if the supervisor doesn't feel wholly confident and to speak to the right people. But I'd be curious to know how you would support a supervisor who really, you know, is very engaged but just feels a little bit underconfident or inexperienced. So I think the places that I would go as a supervisor to learn 
is one would be local land council. So if you have a local land council, they might have some history that they can share. The other place would be if you've got access to a cultural mentor. And at the moment with the RTOs, there should be access to cultural mentors. They're pretty good. They've got lots of knowledge on, one, what you need to know as a doctor and as a registrar. And two, they have knowledge of the local community. The other place to go are the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander services in your area. So if there's an Aboriginal medical service or a community-controlled health organisation, then approaching them, getting information, finding out who the local elders are and the other place that you go for information on that can also be not just the land councils but your local council as well because often they'll engage elders to participate and do welcome to countries, citizenship ceremonies and and all that sort of thing. So there are a few places you could go to get that information. In the resource for GPSA, the, the actual guide is a map. And again, I did say that there was going to be history that we're not proud of. It's actually a massacre map that's starting to be put together by the University of Newcastle, which is actually really interesting. And it gives you an insight into some of the history that's not shared or hasn't been shared with the wider population as freely as it should have been. There's lots of books and resources. You can start off reading quite broadly and then focusing down on your local area, or you can go from the local area and then just expand out. It depends on which way you want to do it. But I think the two-way learning is actually quite lovely and I think registrars appreciate that as well and again you are role modeling to the registrar that you don't know everything but you know where to find information. I was reflecting last week on the huge change in the time since I was a GP registrar and the access to resources like cultural mentors and resources like the GPSA guide and teaching plans. So things are a whole bunch better than they were. And so it's just a question, I think, in some respects of of looking and seeking those supports out. Yeah, and I think, you know, RACGP and ACRIM should have that information too, you know, and, and I think that, again, that's um, really important. Talking about who we are, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the map, this is just to highlight the diversity within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture remembering that there were 200 plus languages on the continent before contact with Europeans. So that's the point of showing the map. If you can find one, sticking it up on the wall is a lovely way to, one, increase the engagement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients that you may have. And two, it's a really good way to start conversation as people will start to talk about where they've been and and whose country they've, you know, either holidayed on or lived on. The purpose of showing the flags is to acknowledge that there's two Indigenous populations in Australia, the Aboriginal, who are Indigenous peoples of the mainland generally, and Torres Strait Islanders who are just north between the tip of Cape York and Papua New Guinea. And one of the things that I think is worthwhile doing with your registrar is going over what is the symbolism behind these flags, mainly because these hold a lot of information regarding the identity of First Nations Australians, the Torres Strait flag. So the green represents the islands, 
The black lines represent the people and the blue represents the waters. The white represents peace. The headdress is a diary. The five points of the star represent the groups and the star itself actually represents navigation and how the skill and how important it is for Aboriginal and Tor uh, for Torres Strait Islander people, um, the navigational skills. Yeah, that's the Torres Strait flag. I do want to just say the one thing that is really important to acknowledge is about the dreaming, not referred to as the dream time because the dreaming are stories. It's about spirituality that is ongoing and living, whereas dream time tends to conjure up this idea that it's something that is set in the past. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander spirituality, we talk about dreaming. Now, the last part of the cultural thing in that circle or piece of pie, I might call it, is actually the idea of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. And health is holistic. It is around the social emotional well-being. It is not just about the absence of disease. It is the social, emotional and cultural well-being of the whole community, but also of the physical environment, not just of the individual and the communities. It's also about, you know, the environment, the earth, the waters, the sky, all of that, the health of that. So for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, it is also viewed as a whole of life, so it's life circle. So it's really important to acknowledge and understand that. A lot of what we've just covered there, you should be able to teach your registrar within the first few weeks, other than the cultural awareness and cultural safety. But like I said, that should really, we should be having them complete all of that within the first six months of their attachment as they're a T1. The resources, so the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Guide that you can download from GPSA website and the teaching plan. And it's got some ideas as to what you can do and some links as well. The other thing it does have, which I think is really important, is the National Days of Celebration and the National Days of Recognition. So there's a bit of information that will hopefully give you some engaging yeah, thank, ways to teach mm, you about Thanks, Karen. So this is probably a really good time to thank Karen formally for her ongoing work in developing these specific in-practice teaching plans on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. So please have a look at the teaching plans and they're hopefully really good uh, resources and, and provide a structure for you to, to talk through some of this with your registrar. So I want to just have a quick word on language because this is something that always seems to come up and people always say, you know, that people don't want to offend. So acceptable terminology. I'm not going to go into what is not acceptable because I think what we should just focus on is what is acceptable. As a doctor, if you don't want to go wrong, referring to people as Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander, depending on, on what they are. Clearly, I've identified as Torres Strait Islander, so referring to me as Aboriginal is not appropriate. Friends of mine who are Aboriginal, to refer to them as Torres Strait Islander is not appropriate. There are about 4% of the Indigenous population identifies as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, which is why it's really important to have the and or in there when you're asking someone the identifying question. I think if you use that, you really can't go wrong. You will offend definitely the least number of people. Terms which are 
appropriate, a little bit less commonly used, but a little bit more than they used to be. So First Nations, First People, First Australians, again, they're appropriate, but they don't represent necessarily the diversity within the Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander population. So if someone identifies as being Warramai, then I think it's completely appropriate to document that that's what they identify, you know, a Warramai man or a Biripai woman, however they choose to identify. Indigenous, again, can sometimes cause offence just because Indigenous is a term that doesn't reflect the diversity within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. So that's appropriate language. Always put a capital A for Aboriginal, just like you would if someone is French. You wouldn't spell French with a lowercase and definitely do not talk about blood centiles, percentages or anything like that. So these would be what I would suggest on appropriate language. And then maybe maybe it's worthwhile trying to think about how would you pull up your registrar? I mean that in the politest way, but how would you address your registrar if they were to use, you know, terminology that's not appropriate? I think it's really important to make it clear at the beginning to a registrar that, you know, correct terminology is important. If they were to say, you know, this is an Indigenous person, you could could say, well, what do you mean? Are they Aboriginal? Are they Torres Strait Islander? Or are they both? And let them know it's okay to refer to someone as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. But definitely let them know that that is what is expected. And Karen, just on that, we did some work a few years ago now here locally in Newcastle looking at registrar's confidence around identification of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander status by in the practice. Yeah. And most registrars were confident, but something in the order of 25% weren't. They really found that quite a challenging question to ask. And I think, as Karen's alluding to, one of the most basic things is equipping your registrar to feel confident asking that and appropriately documenting that in the clinical record. And the registrar will feel more confident if you are more confident and you demonstrate it. And I think that's, again, it's the role modelling as supervisors. If we're confident, then it instills confidence in them, in the registrars. Was that self-reported, Simon, or...? That was self-reported. That was part of the big recent study that was looking at registrar clinical activity. We also looked at just whether the the patient's Indigenous status had been reported and recorded in the record. I can't remember the figure now, but some significant figure, perhaps a third of occasions that it wasn't documented. And so, again, I think just like we record allergies and medication list and try to keep those things updated, if it's if it's absent, it, it should be um, identified. Registrars should be encouraged to do that. Yeah, and auditing it, I think, is a really good way for registrars to reflect on it. And and working in an an AMS, I actually had the registrars audit the identifying question, and it was quite insightful for them to reflect and especially to see where they haven't asked the patient and where it hasn't been documented. So the next part is clinical, and this is usually the part that's 
relatively straightforward for GPs. Remember that for First Nations Australians, health is a holistic concept. You cannot have good health unless the well-being in all areas are intact. A connection to body, a connection to mind and emotions, a connection to family and kinship, a connection to community, a connection to culture, a connection to country and a connection to spirit, spirituality and ancestors. So we know about the social determinants of health. That's, you know, our housing, employment and education. The historical determinants are the things that have happened in the past and that's experienced through intergenerational trauma. And the political determinants are those policies that we talk about as well as other policies that may be affecting the day. So if we think about the intervention in the Northern Territory, that's had quite significant effect and that would be deemed a political determinant. You need to understand that the biomedical approach to health has not worked for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and does not work. So you need to be really holistic. So you must be able to teach your registrar about these impacts on the patient in which they're seeing. So, for example, if we think about recurrent otitis media in a child, well, we know that overcrowding is a significant risk factor for recurrent otitis media. And therefore, it highlights the importance of identifying the patient if they're First Nations because there's a high risk of overcrowding. But it also means, does your registrar know what qualifies as overcrowding? And do they know what appropriate referral services there might be to help families find appropriate housing? The Guide to Preventative Health Assessment for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people does give some really good explanations about what is overcrowding. Okay, so I do want to just also acknowledge, while we've talked about social determinants, the historical and political determinants of health, I want to talk about the cultural determinants of health. The cultural determinants of health are just as important because the connection to country, kinship, knowledge, beliefs, language, self-determination and cultural expression, these are actually the things that give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people strength allow them to be able to negotiate and manage health and their well-being. So connection to country, I'm sure a number of the doctors can think of when a patient has talked about the need for connection to country. Maybe an example of a case would be, you know, a university student, you know, if you're seeing a a 22-year-old female who's coming in feeling sad and depressed, they're at university studying. We're 2022, they've had two years of COVID, their family, let's just say, are up in Kempsey and they haven't had a chance to go home and see their family. Yes, it's important to diagnose depression. Yes, it's important to ensure that they are safe and not a risk to themselves. Yes, it's important to discuss medication and psychological treatment, but also discussing the cultural determinants of health. What would that person being able to go back to country mean for them? So these are the things that you need to talk to your registrar or teach them about how important these sorts of things are. Kinship, you know, if someone's had a falling out with a significant family member and are unable to either fulfil their cultural obligations, that can actually affect their sense of well-being. Language, we know that 
the loss of language has actually also had a profound impact on the community as a whole. This one-minute video that's being done by New South Wales Health, that's a really lovely summary of the social determinants of health and the impact. It is worthwhile having a look at, and I would actually recommend using this particular video to teach your registrars and then perhaps you could go through the last you know two or three Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander patients that they've seen and ask them about how those social determinants of health may be having an impact on those patients that they've seen. Social determinants of health and again it's really important that registrars be aware of social determinants of health but acknowledge to the registrar that we can often feel powerless as to how to fix these, but it is essential that we acknowledge them. And these can become important when it comes to doing the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Assessment or the 715. Being really just aware of it, I think is important. All right, so clinical, you know, understanding the statistics, you know, we, we understand the rates of increased heart disease, diabetes. So understanding those, that's a really quite easy to find. Understanding that there may be different treatment protocols. So there may be different treatment protocols for things such as skin sores, in the local area, so in Patago, there might be for um, different treatment protocols for, you know, otitis, um, suffrative otitis media. So thinking about those and knowing about those is really important. But also understanding the preventative care and what you need to do for that. So screening, generally, you might need to think about starting at a younger age. So teaching your registrar these things, screening for heart disease, screening, you might need to have the discussion about starting screening for breast cancers or bowel screen might need to start earlier as well. Knowing that there's different risk assessment tools that have been validated, and I'll go through some of those, but there is an assessment tool for risk for self-harm and suicide for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. That is the only culturally appropriate validated tool in Australia for First Nations Australians. So that's really important to know as well. Screening for dementia, there are tools for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that have been validated and culturally appropriate. So just understanding all of that, the risk assessment tools for heart disease as well. Can I just ask, based on that, Karen, mm. what, what's your approach to a registrar maybe asking about more general tools that are used in general practice that are not culturally validated. How do we make a judgment on those? I think that can be hard. And I think about something like the the K10 or the DAS. And you know, sometimes that's all we've got available. But I think you would have to listen to the patient really closely in what they're saying and make sure that you've created a, you know, a really safe environment where you can have the patient feel that they can disclose if there is risk. And if you're uncertain, reaching out to services, so if we, if we use mental health as an example, reaching out to services who do provide culturally appropriate care because they should have access to those tools. So if we talk about Newcastle, just because that's where both of us are, Simon, there is a youth mental health service that is for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They are able to do that culturally appropriate assessment. They do have yeah. access to those tools. So, so again, just knowing what might be around 
Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think, one just to reflect on, really, and I'm not sure. It, it is a hard thing. I think maybe yeah. this notion of culturally validated tool is possibly a little bit foreign to some uh, registrars, maybe even some supervisors, that it makes a difference. But I think I imagine you would see that as such an important thing that these any tools we use must have had some experience and exposure and validation in the appropriate population. So I think that makes a really good point. And certainly the mental health tools like K10 and S21 and things, I think are great examples because of their of the nuance of some of the words and ways things are expressed. Yeah. And you're right about the nuance of the words because I often find when people read the DAS 21, they will ask me, well, what do they mean by this? And, you know, clearly I can't tell them. <laughs> because that takes away the effectiveness but the use of language is different and you know aboriginal english is quite different to standard english in australia and can, can i just ask the name of the the validated social and emotional well-being tool was it's called the whisk dr tracy westerman who's an aboriginal psychologist from western australia she designed and she tested her tool and it is quite holistic in how it approaches, and it asks the same question in a few different ways so that there can be no misunderstanding and so that you pick it up where people are actually at risk of suicide because it also takes into account their, their cultural connection and those cultural determinants of health. Thank you. WISC, so WISC. Okay, so just to quickly go through some things that point to how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and approach sometimes is different. So registrars need to understand the immunisation schedule and what the additional immunisations may be for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So, you know, when you can get the pneumococcal, flu vax, all of that. So just being aware and making sure that your registrar's knowledgeable about that. There are actual documents, Best Practice Guide to Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Care for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people attending primary care. The other one is the National Guide to Preventative Health, which helps inform the 715s and a really good document that is as well. It's due for an update, so the fourth edition will probably be coming out in the next 12 to 18 months, I imagine. The cardiovascular risk, and this is just a reminder that rheumatic heart disease and acute rheumatic fever still occur in Australia and at the largest rates in the world. So it is something as general practitioners, even if we are not working in areas where it's endemic, we need to know about this. We need to know how to diagnose, recognise, diagnose and treat both of these because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, are, you know, the population is quite mobile. The other guide is, is ear health and Karen alluded to our yeah. media. And the nice thing is some of our clinical resources like therapeutic guidelines and things do have specific sections on that. And again, always just talking and integrating what if the patient was Aboriginal, how might that change your management when you're doing teaching, when you're talking about patients, when you're doing random case analysis, that sort of thing. Thanks, Karen. And, and that's what I used to do with registrars. I would say if this was an Aboriginal patient, how would that change, you know, how we interpret the result or how would we manage just so that it was always at the forefront. And then the wonderful thing about that is then you start to 
go on a little bit of a, you know, an expedition looking for different resources. And, you know, it is quite amazing what you can find out there if you go looking. So I'll just quickly talk about consultation. So just bearing in mind that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are quite good at picking up nonverbal communication and body language. So again, making sure that you're teaching your registrar that when they are seeing an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander patient, that they have to seem engaged. Turning away, working on a computer does not work and sit well with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. A yarn is good and a yarn is just sitting and having a chat and you will actually find that a yarn is a really good way to build rapport. So teaching your registrar the skill of being able to have a yarn, it might mean that, you know, you've got to disclose maybe something that you're interested in, a hobby or something like that, and only what you're prepared to share, but teaching the registrar. So often a, a point of discussion for me and my patients was always fishing because I like fishing. I've worked in places where pretty much it's saltwater people, so, you know, fishing is always a big thing. Appointments, again, longer appointments and teaching your registrar, you know, this is why we identify our patients if they're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander so that we can make longer appointments to be able to provide holistic health care. Then the other important things are around who's appropriate, who should be in the consultation, the use of silence. And I'll, I'll just give an example. And this is an example that's actually based on a patient that I looked after. And so a 64-year-old Aboriginal lady is informed of her breast cancer diagnosis and she's been asked to see her GP to start a discussion on an advanced health directive and and she was very good and she came back and did that and so the conversation started and it wasn't someone I knew particularly well but she engaged and we started having the conversation and during the conversation I noticed that she wasn't talking much at all and was quite silent so you need to be careful not to interpret that as a grant. I'm also aware during the consultation that she didn't seem to want to answer questions. And so one of the important things I did ask her was, is there someone else who needs to be here? So, you know, if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients aren't engaged, well, don't seem to be engaging, they seem to be silent, then saying, is there someone else who needs to be part of this conversation? And she said, yes, there was. And she listed, you know, two, two other relatives and they were actually two people that were important to be there to make those decisions for her. And again, it's just because of how the relationships and kinships are and because Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are a collective society, not an individualistic society. So collective decisions are made by the group. If she had just started saying yes, 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 then it should trigger the idea that she's just saying yes just to end the conversation and get out and go. So don't ever assume that yes does mean yes. It is about that the yes is steeped from and stems from that history where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were, their lives were controlled and you would say yes just to agree with authority and you would do as you're told. Making sure that your registrars are using very open-ended questions and not direct questions and not closed questions because that is the sure way of the registrar not getting the information they need. Open-ended questions might end up taking the registrar on a bit of a journey by the patient 
but you'll actually get all the information you need if you allow that yarning and the patient to build the narrative around why they're there. If the patient says that it's important for them to actually say it, they feel that it's important some way, but this is why we have longer appointments. And yeah, I think a nice spot to finish in terms of the consultation things. I Just reflecting on that and reflecting on registrars, I gave a talk recently about the learning I guess, style of so many international medical graduates taught in this sort of Socratic way of interviewing patients, very much sort of the doctor's agenda to explore, ask the right questions and sort of build up a history. And I guess in many respects, Karen, the absolute antithesis of what you're talking about here, which is allowing the conversation to drift and it be a narrative and and to truly yarn. And that might be a very challenging change for many registrars who have trained in that much more rigid style but such an important one to to observe by sitting in and and then to encourage a a different approach is that something you've observed it is and I mean it takes a lot of practice but it is something that I have observed with registrars and I think you've hit the nail on the head sitting in and observing them the registrar is is the important way to be able to provide the feedback and in a timely fashion so they can reflect on that consultation, providing them with, you know, examples and saying, I noticed when you asked this, this was the patient's response, but I noticed when you, you asked this open-ended question, this is all the information you got out of the patient. So mm-hmm. being able to sit in and observe. So it, it does take practice, but, you know, our role as supervisors is to teach the registrars how to start to work towards cultural safety. We can only do that through observing and getting feedback from, you know, the patients and the community as to whether or not they feel safe with that particular doctor. Thank you very much, Karen. It's always a wonderful opportunity to present with you and to tap into your incredibly rich understanding of this area. You're a a bit of a legend, I've got to say, and it's, um, it's wonderful to have you on. So thank you so very much. I really hope everyone's taken something from this that, you know, very practically can apply to registrar teaching uh, in the next little while. And we look forward to seeing you at an upcoming GPSA webinar. So thanks very much all. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervision Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervision Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.